Welcome to Season 2 of The Good Conversation with Dr. John Gellibrand. It's a great pleasure to welcome everybody to this next in Season 2 of The Good Conversation uh, podcast. I'll introduce our guest in a few minutes, but first of all, a word about The Good Conversation podcast. The idea of the good conversation is that theologians, church leaders, leaders in wider society should be open to the most difficult, to the most challenging questions, to really go to the heart of the matter. It's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Bishop June Osborne, Bishop of Llandaff in the Church in Wales today. And so, Bishop June, I do have to ask you my first question, which is, are you up for the Good Conversation podcast? Hello, John. I absolutely am. I think the, uh, the pursuit of really good conversations, deep and careful conversations, is so important to our private life and our public life. So thank you very much for the invitation. Can I ask you, first of all, to introduce yourself? And can I ask you that very Welsh question? Where are you from? And how did that place shape the person you are today? I'm a Mancunian, John. And so am I. So am I. <laughs> and, uh, and a Lancastrian, because I'm old enough to uh, predate uh, the Greater Manchester Authority. Uh, so I... Um, I grew up believing myself to be uh, uh, that twin identity of uh, a Northwest, a Northwest lass, uh, really. Um, but funnily enough, I've just been back to some of my roots with my son, who wanted me to have a couple of days of nostalgia with him so that he could find out some of uh, what happened in uh, my first 20 years. Uh, which of course are completely hidden from our children. So I've just revisited uh, those roots. But of course I am also Welsh. Uh, I'm Welsh by the fact that I live in Wales, but also that I'm married to a Welshman. Um, uh, my husband was born and, and grew up the first bit of his childhood uh, in South Wales, uh, in Cardiff. And so I'm very conscious that the world I inhabit now in the Diocese of Llandaff is very familiar to my um, uh, in-law family. Indeed, I meet them all over the diocese. Uh, not all of them are Anglicans. Uh, uh, many of them are South Wales Baptists uh, uh, by affiliation. But uh, it does mean that uh, I'm not just I've not just moved to South Wales in order to work within the church in Wales, but um, I was coming here uh, knowing that my um, inherited family of almost 40 years, uh, this was where their roots all lay. That's that's very interesting because I've taken a similar journey from uh, from Manchester and then have lived and worked in Wales uh, over many years. I think the key difference between us that is that I'm the first generation of Gillibrands, as far as I'm aware, or of uh, my particular part of the family to uh, arrive in Wales. But uh, that's a, it's a very interesting trajectory, uh, and I'm always matching up what I've learned from Manchester with what I've learned from Wales as well, as I'm sure, uh, as I'm sure you are. Um, when were you ordained as a priest? 
1994, though, of course, to answer that question, I slightly mislead people because um, I had been in the ministry of the Anglican Church since 1980. I was made a deaconess in 1980. Uh, before that, I had worked as a lay parish worker as well in a parish in Oxford. So there are very different stages of my uh, life of ministry experience, um, of service of the church. Um, and for seven years, I was a, after seven years as a deaconess, I was seven years as a deacon in deacon's orders. And of course, therefore, my story absolutely matches the story of the Anglican Church in these lands, uh, where um, we took our time about deciding whether to ordain uh, women. Um, and we did it in uh, very slow stages. Um, and um, that, so I've been in ministry. What would that, um, I mean, the formal pensionable ministry uh, of either the Church of England or the Church in Wales um, now for um, more than 40 years. Can, can I ask you a specific question about that? Um, you mentioned that uh, delay, as it were, between your deaconing and your priesting. Looking back on that period in your own life now and that period in the history of the Anglican Church, how do you feel about that? And what I'm really asking for is your gut reaction to all of that. What's your gut reaction to that now? My deepest reaction actually is one of enormous privilege that I've lived at a time of social change so that I have experienced things which uh, women in previous generations couldn't hope to have experienced. I'm absolutely confident that there were women, uh, particularly in the you know, 18th, 19th, 20th century, who had a vocation to priesthood. I think of people like Elizabeth Wordsworth or Florence Nightingale who served either in higher education or nursing, but um, whose whole family was filled with clerics. And had they, had they been a man, I suspect they'd have been, you know, an archdeacon or a bishop uh, and exercising their leadership like that. So my, my deepest feeling is a sense of, um, haven't I been lucky to live at a time of such social change? And of course, um, uh, I have to face up to the fact that the church has sometimes been very neuralgic about the subject of women's ordination. Indeed. Um, and uh, um, it's, um, it's found a number of issues difficult about uh, identity, gender, sexuality over the years. Um, but um, I've always been supported by colleagues who have cheered me on. And that's, uh, of course, another really positive, joyful story that whatever the institutional church was doing at any particular point, um, individuals encouraged me. And um, I also know that it is uh, the Anglican way to step into a new reality and then to go about institutionalizing it, to tidy it up, sort it out, make it part of the organization's life. And that's exactly what we did about women's ordination. You know, I was a, a, a parish worker. There had been women who had been missionaries in the mission field overseas. Um, there had been women growing into ministry. 
for many years. And so by the time we came to the decision of were we going to allow women to be priests or bishops, um, actually, we'd already stepped into that new reality. And uh, the, the theological convictions, the legislation had to catch up with it. You're, you're now uh, Bishop of Flander. Could I ask you to talk a little about your ministry before you came Bishop? Um, where did you minister over that uh, period from when you became a deaconess right the way through? We'll come on later to being Bishop of Flanduff, but uh, what was your ministry before that? And where, where was it? Well, in the 1970s, when I first um, offered for work in the church, I had always assumed that it would be in parish life. That was my expectation and that was where I set off to. I, never, I didn't have any other sense of where ministry might take me. And I've been immensely lucky that um, over the years I have combined parish ministry. I worked for, uh, I worked in Oxford, I worked in Birmingham in parishes, and I then did a spell of oh, about 12 years in the end of London. So in addition to parish life, I've also picked up uh, on other experiences of ministry. Um, for instance, when I was in Birmingham, I was chaplain of Birmingham Children's Hospital for just short of five years. And that was a very formative experience uh, for me, both of what it is to be a Christian, but also um, what it is to be a minister in the face of the sickness of children and sometimes the death of children. Um, and then after uh, the East End of London, to my absolute surprise, I went into cathedral ministry. I think I'd hardly ever darkened the door of a cathedral except to go and get ordained there. Um, and yet I found myself working for Salisbury Cathedral and I did there actually three different jobs. Uh, the th third one of which was that I became Dean of the cathedral and uh, I worked in the Dean's office for all oh, the best part of 15 years. I know Salisbury Cathedral really well. My wife uh, trained at the old uh, Salem St. Michael uh, Teacher Training uh, College. And so I'm taken back there many times. And uh, I also know very well uh, Salem College that does such mm. excellent work there in the uh, close in, uh, in uh, training for ministry and in other, and in other forms of training. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, very familiar with uh, Salisbury. I'm also a historian. Uh, so just being in the cathedral is uh, is a tremendous experience. Um, I asked you earlier on what your gut reaction to something was. Can I ask you to imagine standing back there in the cathedral, leaving aside the role that you had there? What's your gut reaction to that marvelous building? What do, what do you what do you feel about that building? I feel two things at exactly the same uh, simultaneous moment. Uh, one is the awe and the splendor of it. It is one of the most majestic architectural treasures of this country, in fact, of the world. You know, it is a, it's a public space. Um, it's not a private chapel. It's a, a, a place that draws people from uh, in normal times all over the world. Uh, to marvel at it, and it's, it is an architectural marvel. 
But at exactly the same time, um, it feels incredibly familiar and a place at which I, I have an intimate relationship with. Because of course, I, I was in that building several times a day uh, for more than 20 years, all told. Uh, my children grew up in Salisbury. Um, uh, it was right in front of our front door. Um, so as we came out of our front door, uh, the spire ray, rise, uh, rose above it, us, and um, uh, it and it, it was just home. It was a place where my spirituality changed, my life changed. Uh, um, I lived out my family life, um, and uh, so if you put me back inside that building, I'm very comfortable. You know, morning and night. I prayed in that building. Uh, I had the enormous privilege of going to Evensong uh, almost every day of the year in that building. And um, I love it. I, uh, it's, it's part of me. You said a few moments ago, my spirituality changed. And here we are on the Good Conversation podcast. I cannot resist the temptation to go straight in and say, how has your spirituality changed over the years? If you could say what the journey has been, how have you changed? What kind of Christian are you now compared to the kind of Christian you started as? Mm. Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? If, if you're going to be true to a good conversation, it's very difficult to be glib about things that are profound and deep. Um, uh, and of course, I don't know the total picture. It, good conversations require people to admit where the limit of their knowledge is. Um, I, I've learned that particularly from my youngest son, who is incredibly good at simply saying, I don't know. And actually... Um, it, we shouldn't know about some things because we don't have sufficient uh, information or we don't have su sufficient insight. But let me have a go at it. Um, I was drawn to the church as a youngster, as a teenager, because I didn't grow up in a church-going family. My parents never, apart, I think probably getting uh, me and my brother back, uh, christened, baptised, was probably the last time they entered a church building. Um, I was drawn to the church because I was looking for certainties and I was looking for community. I was looking for things that um, uh, I, upon which I could rely with, uh, with, with a sense that uh, I knew where the boundaries were and, and my love of scripture. Uh, comes from right from that early stage of wanting somebody to give me a framework for um, how life is explicable. Um, but I also grew up in a very untidy world, uh, a, a community that was poor, um, a domestic situation that was turbulent and difficult, and um, I've always been drawn to uh, people who make mistakes or who live untidy lives or who get things wrong. I think I'm much better uh, as a priest and a bishop 
with people who honestly say I've made a mess than I am with people who want to show me um, their neat work uh, and orderly lives. Occupational hazard of a bishop, I should imagine, that people yeah. want to want to show you their neat work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course they want to show you uh, the best of them. Mm. Um, Indeed. Uh, so um, just a couple of things on that journey. One, I, I referred to working in a children's hospital. It was there that I learned to pray better about things about, about which I could do nothing. You know, I do believe that we should be petitioning God to act in our world and to act in our lives. But I had to learn in the children's hospital to pray with uh, often staff or parents uh, for things that we our hearts ached to happen, but which might not. And so um, uh, part of the change in my spiritual life, as with everybody, is uh, what happens when you're in that place of prayer, when you're yielding to God's purposes. For us. Um, I think I also learned, um, uh, particularly in Salisbury, um, to value the depth of spirituality in beautiful things and how important. I didn't grow up in a world of beauty, I grew up in an inner city community um, uh, without the means to escape it. Um, but the power of beauty and the power of the aesthetic was something that uh, became increasingly important in my uh, sense of God. And uh, yes, it, it, it is true. I mean, we're in my diocese now, we're surrounded by very many beautiful things. And I think that's very often how people come to a sense of the divine in their life. Is, is not by the word, it's not by the cerebral, it is by uh, the places which uh, bring out of them awe and wonder and a sense of innocence, a sense of, a sense that uh, there is something deeply spiritual about their life. What, what I'm hearing in your answer there is that you see the world as this very, very strange mixture mm. of great joy and great pain and uh, trouble. Um, I, I think it's so important that in the church we acknowledge the reality of what is around us, and it is that strange mixture. Do you think that people in positions of church leadership in general are as honest as you've just been about the whole question of unanswered prayer? Well, you can't avoid, you cannot avoid the subject of unanswered prayer. Mm. Um, and, you know, we do know that for some people it brings their faith into crisis when yes. prayer is not answered and they travel experiences of tragedy or deep loss and pain and um, they despair when they feel that they're battering on a, a cold and unresponsive heaven 
Um, I don't believe there's anybody who has any pastoral or compassionate instinct who, who can't identify with that experience. But you mentioned church leaders, and it's true for all um, priests and, and, and bishops. The tension we live with is that uh, we, are, we are representatives of what the, the church, through its doctrines, through its history, through its traditions, uh, what we want to preserve, what we want to sustain. And sometimes that is in real tension with our pastoral heart. Mm. Um, you take the example that we have to hold boundaries, which are very difficult. Um, and uh, sometimes it's right to hold them because steadiness is uh, the steadiness of the faith, the steadiness of the institution is um, is what's going to help the church um, progress and what is going to make it accessible to people uh, down the years. I was listening um, just either this morning or last night to the story about the possibility that the Roman Catholic Church will refuse to give communion to Joe Biden because he is pro-abortion. And I'm thinking, what uh, what a... What a terrible decision the Roman Catholic bishops of the United States have to make in that situation, because he's only the second president of the states who's, who's been a, a, a Roman Catholic. And I think he's certainly a, a very devout Roman Catholic. Uh, he's, a, he's a man of great faith and piety. Um, what would it be like to effectively excommunicate him over that issue? So there's a good example of when do you hold the institutional boundaries and when uh, do you uh, cross them? And uh, the question of uh, unanswered prayer is a very good example of when do you go on as a church leader saying God always answers prayer and when do you rage with people? Yes, I, I think what I'm thinking here is that it, it's important for us to recognise how challenging faith can be and that yes. if somebody doesn't turn up for church on a Sunday morning, it can actually be because they've conscientiously thought through things in the light of their own personally very difficult experiences. Is, would, that make, uh, would that make sense? Yes, but what bothers me, John, is that do we have those conversations with people absolutely um, do we um or do we keep um surfing at a fairly shallow level actually one of the good things about the pandemic is that um christians have had to take their worshiping life and their spiritual life uh back into their home much more mm. and uh they've had to connect with the community from you know, their Zoom screen or remote uh, Bible study, whatever it is. And um, actually, one of the challenges to uh, people like myself is we may think we know people. We may think that they are people of faith. But to what extent do we sit alongside them and give them permission to talk about where their faith has been strong and where it is weak? 
Right. Let's go to the real. This this next bit is a question I've always wanted to ask a bishop, <laughs> and it and it's this. Imagine that you're not talking now to somebody who's been in ordained ministry for thirty years and has been attending church since the nineteen seventies. Uh, but imagine that I haven't been to church in my uh, 60 years of life, except for um, family occasions, um, all kinds of uh, different occasions, as you know, uh, but somebody who's very much on the margins of the church. And I'm asking you now as a bishop, why should I believe in God? <laughs> I know there's a long answer to that question, but I'd ask you to give me give me the give me take me to the heart of that just for a few moments well if you want the shortest answer it's why not you know it's Thank the beginning you. of a conversation about um uh, uh, uh the background being that most cultures through most ages and across most of this globe people believe in god so what stop what would stop you um uh, uh forming for your own experience that sense of the divine in your life you see culturally i think we come i think we come we haven't we've given far too much ground to the idea of secularization uh, as almost the normative experience and that the the wacky odd people are the people who have uh, religious instincts or practice faith and, and it's just not true. It, it, the, the vast majority of people have either culturally uh, uh, created habits in their life uh, that are faith habits, or they've, uh, at a personal level, they've gone on a, a spiritual journey, a pilgrimage of some kind. And so uh, the conversation you're asking me to have with somebody outside the church is one of uh, of inquisitiveness. I would, I would want to uh, interrogate and hear what is it would, that would stop you uh, wanting to have God in your life? Thank you. And that brings me on to my second question. I said that I, the previous question I'd always wanted to ask a bishop. And this next question is a question I've always wanted to ask of a bishop of the church in Wales. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Anglican Church in uh, in this wonderful land of Wales. Um, why would it be say say that I have a belief in God? Why would it be a good idea to be a member of the Church in Wales? How would you briefly advertise for us the Church in Wales? Again, to somebody who might not know it well. Oh, that's a terrific question. If I'm thank you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, I think I, th I think the only answer I could give would be a, a testimony uh, of why being an Anglican has been so joyful and important to me. You know, I'm very conscious that there's a strong, strong uh, non-conformity in the culture of Wales. Indeed. And um, indeed, uh, as I said at the beginning, um, most of my in-laws uh, are practicing non-conformists and uh, I read into the history of Wales and I love the story. Uh, um, it has its darker sides, but it's a, a really strong story of the non-conformist tradition. 
And so all I could do is uh, give testimony to the fact that when I was searching for a community in which I could grow in my relationship with Jesus Christ, it was the it was the Anglican tradition that gave me everything that I needed, uh, including a social theology. You know, I needed it to have real engagement uh, with the realities of the community and the world in which I lived. I didn't want something that was detached, um, that uh, had a capacity to hold people of many different traditions together, that we are such a broad table and... Uh, we have to work quite hard at disagreeing well, uh, but we, uh, the Anglican uh, family uh, is about as broad as the church's tradition has ever got. Um, and very importantly, um, this would be part of my testimony. Um, um, I grew up in a working class background. And interestingly, uh, people often try and typify the church, um, uh, the Anglican church, as a um, uh, as an elitist or a, a posh uh, church. I found exactly the opposite, that um, uh, the, the cultural breadth, the tolerance and the willingness to revisit issues um, gave me the space uh, to be a working class member uh, of the Anglican Church. So um, I, I am quite passionate, as you would expect me to be, I'm quite passionate uh, about the church in Wales. Um, and it's, it is because there's a contextualization about it all. You know, our, we've been able to uh, we've been able to protect our churches in every community, as the decline of the uh, church numbers have really had an enormous impact uh, across Wales. Uh, we now have, you know, we still have very strong uh, congregations and clergy in somewhere like the Rhondda. Um, we, we're sustaining. Uh, church life uh, there and part of the reason we can do that is because we're absolutely totally committed to the parish system that um, church isn't congregationally based it's actually community based that that's led me to a number of questions and I'm mindful of our uh, time um, I'm now going to fulfill another ambition that I've, I've always wanted to use a particular quotation uh, to um, uh, to a bishop um, taken from Father Ted that would be an ecumenical matter <laughs> uh, now uh, which kind of follows on from uh, what you've just been saying yeah. um, I work in a community I've, I, I must sit down and count the number of different places of uh, Christian worship here including three within my own parish uh, three um, three Anglican places of worship, but there's there's over twelve places of worship within a community of say uh, ten thousand uh, people. In term, uh, apart from the theological issues, in terms of our resources as Christian churches, does that make sense anymore? And are we working hard enough to bring about uh, reconciliation 
um, after a very, very troubled history, as you know, here in Wales, between the different Christian denominations. I, again, I'm going to fulfill an ambition of quoting scripture to a bishop, uh, which is by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. I could take a walk to the far end of my parish and there's evidence in stone that we don't love each other particularly well. Mm. Well, this is a paradox, uh, John, isn't it? And I'm not going to try and um, smooth out the paradox. Uh, the paradox is, as you have uh, recited it, that uh, Jesus said uh, that unity is truth, that unity is our truth, that we are one. Uh, we are one uh, as he was one with the Father. So we are one as the body of Christ. Uh, and we shouldn't um, skirt around and, and, and try and diminish that in any sense at all. But I also think that human nature, well, first of all, human nature gets things badly wrong quite a lot of the time. Indeed. And we have to recognise that the church uh, uh, is um, constantly, gloriously in need of reform um, because we do, we do, we abuse, we fall out, uh, we, um, we're unforgiving. Uh, we, can, we can spend all day reciting our flaws and failures. But there's another human trait, and that is that we like our differences. And actually, you know, there isn't a, an argument that says we all ought to shop at one supermarket. We like shopping in different supermarkets. And, uh, um, and uh, the same instinct of uh, wanting to express human creativity um, uh, shows itself in the different emphases of the church. And so some churches um, are much more Presbyterian in their governance. Um, some are much more Episcopal in their governance. And uh, I mean, I have, I have churches across my own diocese that uh, look as if they could barely belong to the same denomination, the same <laughs> tradition. Yes, <laughs> and indeed. I and I rejoice in it. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, in the 1960s and 70s and, and 80s, the ecumenical movement felt as if it was uh, um, an attempt to put us all in the same melting pot. Um, actually, I think we've gone the opposite direction now, and we actually see the benefit of uh, regarding, respecting, uh, enjoying each other's strength of traditions and inclinations. But none of that means that we can be unloving or live in silos uh, apart from one another. Some of the best uh, initiatives, take something like street pastors, uh, which has, uh, or open the book, which have both been uh, really important and successful church initiatives, have been done ecumenically. What, what matters is that we let a thousand flowers bloom. Splendid, splendid. <laughs> I, I have to say I was trained at St Stephen's House, so I'm, I'm very aware that some, sometimes uh, we can be uh, mistaken for a different ecclesial communion. Um, <laughs> Now, um, I arrived in Wales in uh, 1988, 
Wales has changed enormously over that time and particularly with the um, advent of uh, devolution mm. and it was a, a wonderful privilege to interview the Reverend uh, Aled Edwards who's uh, mm -hmm. taken such a part in those processes uh, over many years. I remember many years ago going down to the uh, bay in Cardiff and uh, it would be wonderful to go in a TARDIS and uh, tell, tell myself what it is like uh, now, and particularly there with the uh, Welsh Parliament at, uh, at the centre of it all. The question I want to ask then, and I know it's a tough question, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, what's the relationship between the church and politics? What's the relationship between uh, theology and politics? Well, you could say the two sides of the same coin, because politics is about priorities. Politics is about the common good, the quality of life, um, how to build a compassionate society. And uh, so faith communities ought to be utterly invested. Uh, they ought to pray uh, for our political leaders. We ought to protect our political leaders from some of um, uh, the abusive uh, habits that are going on at the moment. Um, and... Uh, and we ought to have a strong enough relationship with um, whether it's local government or uh, devolved government or uh, Westminster. We ought to have a strong enough relationship that sometimes we can say challenging things. Uh, the bishops in Wales, for instance, uh, wrote a letter along with others, uh, other ecumenical leaders, about um, universal benefit and um, the reduction of that. And I, I'd like to think that some of that campaign led to the decision in the budget this week to, um, uh, to ameliorate the effects of the reduction in universal benefit. So um, it's, um, uh, it's a relationship uh, uh, of respect and challenge. And challenge and support is where change happens. So if you ask me for a simple answer to the relationship between faith and politics, I would say it's, uh, it's support and challenge because that actually is where uh, change happens and all of us actually are in the business of change. We're in the business of working for the better good. Would it be fair comment then to say that the Church in Wales can be a critical friend of politicians of all kinds down in the Bay in Cardiff? Uh, the fact is that uh, all politicians uh, deserve our engagement with them. And we will sometimes disagree about policy priorities. But, you know, uh, particularly at the moment, with uh, a massive uh, health crisis going on, I think the divisions between political parties are less significant for us than our need to build a consensus about how we pull together to protect uh, the most vulnerable and to, and to uh, build back better, as we say. Uh, but uh, what a crisis does is it shows us that actually uh, working together is not optional. It's, it's an absolute imperative uh, to work together and to build to build a consensus, uh, because quite a lot of the quite a lot of the solutions to our uh, social issues are painful ones. Uh, some people will have to make sacrifices 
Uh, and in order to make those sacrifices, they will need to believe in why it is that, you know, they pay higher taxes or uh, they don't get what they want. Um, if you look across the pond at our friends in America, um, the art of compromise seems to have disappeared uh, from the political landscape there. Um, but the church and its leaders and its citizens are in the business of encouraging um, uh, common consensus politics and compromise. Um, and so I, am, I, am I sounding like a, a, a kind of woolly centrist? Probably I am. Um, I have my radical edges and I have my conservative. I, do you know, I think, John, I'm like more people than we give credit for. Uh, I can be radical and passionate about some questions because it's right to be outraged on behalf of the weakest. And then I can uh, also argue that we have to be steady and careful uh, and that uh, a good society also needs to be a stable society. Yes, you, you talked um, early on about the travails of the Anglican Communion with the um, Ministry of uh, Women. Um, and eventually the discussions that uh, led up to the ordination of women to the episcopate. The governing body of the Church in Wales has just passed a bill which will authorise the blessing of same-sex unions in church. First of all, do you rejoice in that decision, as I do? And secondly, is the fact that the church is struggling so much with these issues causing damage to our profile within the public square and to our basic credibility? Well, it's on record that all of the bishops of the Church in Wales supported uh, the, the bill for uh, the new liturgy. Uh, it's experimental. It'll last for five years. And we anticipate that in the course of that five years, we'll have to address both the doctrine of marriage and also uh, what our stand is on uh, marrying people, uh, same-sex marriages in church. We will, so we're on a, uh, this is a subject that's going to be with us for a number of years. Um, and yes, I do rejoice in that decision. I think the governing body made a, a bold decision and it was the right decision. Um, uh, my children, I suspect like uh, most millennials, simply who who are, who grew up very loyal to the Anglican Church simply cannot understand and cannot sign up to something that says that all our convictions about um, uh, baptism being our source of identity and that God loves us all equally, all the things that we would recite as part of our creedal life, uh, that actually the issue of sexual identity um, uh, places people in a, um, uh, a place where we make exceptions for their lifestyle and their, you know, it is a question of fidelity. It is, it's a question of um, uh, loyalty, fidelity, lifelong commitment. Interestingly, the, the new liturgy, um, uh, is a blessing of those who have committed themselves to one another. So you have to have either registered your civil partnership or you have to have married as a same-sex couple. And then 
uh, this liturgy comes into to play. And that's absolutely right, because what where I think the church needs to hitch its wagon is to the question of uh, faithfulness. Um, uh, I'm sounding I'm sounding very uh, much like a lobbyist or a warrior here, uh, aren't I? Actually, it's out of my it's out of my pastoral convictions that this this sense has grown. And I do understand. I do understand those for whom um, this is not a second order issue. This is a, a make or break. Uh, I understand that for some people they think um, uh, the Church in Wales has departed from uh, the, the the faith of the Church. Um, I just plead with them to think again, and uh, because I absolutely don't believe that to be true, um, I think actually we've done something rather glorious in the um, introduction of a liturgy uh, to celebrate love, um, uh, to celebrate I, my. My children both have godparents who are in lifelong same-sex relationships, and uh, and I thank God deeply for them. Amen, amen. I, it has to be said, and I'll place it on the record now that I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be able to conduct a same-sex marriage in one of the churches in uh, in this uh, parish. But yeah. uh, there will be a mighty celebration afterwards, not just for the couple concerned, but for the local uh, local vicar. Um, but we will hopefully, God willing, look forward uh, to that. Um, we now come, I think, to the quick fire round which uh, this happens to everyone who takes part in the Good Conversation uh, podcast. And I've, I've had some fascinating answers, which is why, why, why I keep doing this thing. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to ask you, um, and if we could make it a quick fire round, uh, but with a bit of explanation as well as we go along, what's your favourite film? Uh, Witness. It's a, it's a story about the Amish, Amish community. Yes, um, that, that was the one with Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, what's your favourite book? Oh, that's so difficult. Um, that really is difficult. Uh, Middlemarch, George Eliot. What is your favourite poem? Poem. poem. Yeah. Uh, A Summer's Day by Mary Oliver. Um, I Yes, I looked at it again uh, yesterday. Uh, what are you going to do with that one wild, glorious life? What is your favourite work of art? And you're not allowed to mention anything in Salisbury Cathedral or indeed, <laughs> Sol or indeed Salisbury Cathedral itself or indeed Llandaff Cathedral and anything in Llandaff Cathedral. Um, I think it would be the painting by Fra Angelica of Mary Magdalene. Uh, it's uh, the original uh, is in Tuscany. Um, I've gone and forgotten exactly where, but I have been to see it. Um, and uh, absolutely beautiful, exquisitely beautiful. What's your favourite drink? Is it wine or beer or orange juice? Gin. 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 I should have... Being trained at St Stephen's House, I should have mentioned the gin, should I not? What's yes. your what's your what's your favourite food? Fish and chips. Do you go for chocolate or sweets? 
chocolate. What's your have you are we allowed to ask? Do you have a pet? And what's your favourite animal? Whether or not you do? Uh, no, we don't have we don't have a pet. We used to have cats uh, at an earlier stage, but actually. Um, during the pandemic, my favourite animal has been the squirrels in the garden. They have brought us such pleasure and enjoyment watching their antics. I have to give you credit. You've won, just won the Good Conversation Podcast Award for the swiftest answers <laughs> in the in the quick fire rounds that uh, anyone can check back over previous podcasts. And uh, some people have been more hesitant than uh, yourself. It it was obviously there already without uh, without having to think very very hard about it. Uh, but this one, I think, you may find a bit more challenging. There are obviously all kinds of things involved in the ministry of a bishop. What is your favourite aspect of being a bishop? Or, alternative question, if you don't want to answer that question, what's your favourite, most joyful moment since you were ordained to the episcopate? Um. Well, in a way, like being a priest, the one of the best things about being a bishop is that no two days are ever the same. Mm. And you never know what is going to come your way. So life is never dull, never boring. And um, uh, I think it has to be said that ordaining people is the uh, is is the event, the uh, the service, uh, which I suppose has the greatest intensity for me. And um, uh, so uh, the privilege, the privilege of being a bishop almost all lies for me in renewing ministry, in bringing people uh, into, into new orders or into new jobs. And just quickly, the bit of Episcopal ministry that you could most do without if you had the choice. Conflict. All the of it. The sense of the sense of grievance and the sense of uh, wanting to blame when things go wrong. Do you know if there's anything the church needs to model in our contemporary society, John? It is mercy. Uh, it is the ability to be reconciled and to uh, and to forgive and to let go of uh, anger and the like. Uh, we we're becoming I'm, I'm just about to read a book called Outrage and uh, which I think the subtitle of which is uh, uh, why have we uh, why is everybody shouting and why is nobody listening hmm. and uh, one of the things we have to practice as a church is um, is the mercy that we see in in, in our Lord and Saviour. I've seen some extraordinary examples of both of mercy and of mercilessness mm -hmm. over the last uh, 30 years, both within the church and uh, and outside it. I was very grateful to the Church in Wales for sending me uh, some years ago now on a conflict management uh, mm -hmm. course. Um, but that all points to how important it is to have the good conversation and the good conversations throughout, mm. uh, I guess, your diocese and uh, across uh, across the world, indeed. Um, this last question now, as I say, thank you to you for um, take, agreeing to take part in the Good Conversation podcast, is this. The church generally and the Church in Wales in particular, 
in 20 years' time, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Are we going downhill all the way? Are the figures going to continue to drag us down? Or are you actually much more optimistic than that? Well, I am by nature a, a glass half full uh, person. Um, but I actually do, I am very optimistic about the church's future, uh, partly because uh, the decline of, um, of numbers is going to force upon us some quite radical choices. Uh, you know, we don't, by nature, make bold choices, courageous choices, and, unless we're forced to. And actually, uh, the church in Wales is going to have to make some quite bold choices. Uh, but speaking for my own diocese, it's going to be growth. I mean, that's our priority. That's our ambition uh, to do as Jesus sent us to do, which is to make disciples. And uh, um, so I'm very, uh, I have a wonderful team around me in Llandaff and uh, together I know that we're going to, um, to grow the church and to tell the joyful story and to communicate that faith really matters. So we're going to be quite like the early Christians, not universally popular, but with a joyful future, would that Popularity say? was never offered by Jesus, was it? Indeed he told not. us not to be anxious, but he never promised popularity. Indeed not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, I'm, go I'm going to leave this on an upbeat note that we are looking forward to the future of the uh, church in Wales. Uh, I'm sure that we're going to have many surprises, but can I thank you, Bishop June, for uh, taking part in the good conversation and for the way in which you've responded to the challenge of the good conversation. I told you that there would be challenging questions. There were challenging questions and you answered the challenging questions. Thank you very much indeed. This has been the Good Conversation podcast uh, with Bishop June Osborne, Bishop of Llandaff, and hosted by the Reverend Dr. John Chilliband. Thank you very much indeed to all my listeners. Thank you for listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Chilliband. This podcast was produced by Phil John with music by Dan Greensmith.